0: Up Thrive Church, my goodness, it's been three weeks since I've been up here, my goodness. Kind of got used to sitting over on that side of you a little bit, just saying. I don't know what we're going to do, next week we start a brand new series, we're not going to have Sergeant Peppers leading us off, man, I don't know, I don't know what that's about. Uh, Before I get rolling here, I I do need to um, give some credit where credit is due, my goodness. Uh, as a senior leader and having done this for a number of years, I have to say that one of the things that I'm most grateful for is when I can step away for a period of time and have quality people come up and deliver the word. And uh, yeah, I am so grateful for Pastor James and Pastor Tim. And uh, I, uh, I have a notebook, <clears throat> and uh, my notebook is uh kind of a planning thing that i have and on the front it says world domination <clears throat> <laughs> so when i bring out the world domination notebook the guys usually know that i have notes taken on their message and i had some real gems and i just really really appreciate that i am um, grateful for those poignant thoughts and the high caliber of people that we have on our staff so now that i've i've said that and uh, That made their heads swell a little bit. Now back to the music, so get back there. Anyway, um, let me tell you a little bit about the music we're going to talk about today. In uh, March of 1987, an Irish band named U2 dropped a new album called The Joshua Tree. How many of you remember this? Yes, absolutely. Those of us who remember the 80s. <clears throat> Those of us who remember the Reagan administration, uh, we remember this, this new album. It was um, very different from the previous work of the band because uh, prior to the Joshua Tree, most of U2's sound was European in flavor, uh, and they had roots in the, um, the punk rock movement back in the 80s. Um, some of us remember that too. <clears throat> But this album, The Joshua Tree, accessed Irish and American roots music. And it's really interesting, when um, in the several interviews that uh, the band members had, they, they talked about their ignorance of, of traditional Irish music, let alone American music, too. And uh, this was kind of their exploration into um, where their sound actually came from after a long kind of progression of... Of, of, of influences, and this is largely considered the band's seminal work. They went from this kind of a claimed band to international superstars with this particular album. Um, the lead singer Bono um, uh, themed the, uh, uh, the album America, the album America. Because he, he talked about in an interview, he was very interested in the, the America of myth and the real America. And so we wanted to explore that idea. And so a lot of the songs deal with decidedly American themes. And uh, a lot of the, the commentators uh, at the time said, and there are some deeply spiritual overtones to all of this, which I think is really interesting um, way of looking at it. The album actually produced three uh, hit songs. The first one was, uh, next slide. Uh, The first one was called With or Without You. Then there was uh, Where the Streets Have No Names. And finally, um, Still Haven't Found What I'm Looking For. And this last uh, song was uh, uh, released in May of 1987. It went to number one on the on the pop charts in August of 87 and spent a total of 17 weeks on the charts. So it was a pretty popular tune. And what, what I find so fascinating about this is that in interviews with the band and the producers, they said that this particular song, still haven't found what I'm looking for, is a gospel song. In fact, if you go onto YouTube, uh, you can find where the band actually recorded a video with a uh, gospel choir from an African-American church in Harlem. It's unbelievable. And how those two things just kind of fit together. And uh, the lead guitarist said, this is a gospel song in, this, in the video. <clears throat> and so they, they actually performed it as such. Um, I, I read uh, one commentator who said, that in this song, American gospel meets Gaelic soul. Isn't that cool? I'm not sure what that means, but I really like it. So, anyway. The Rock and Roll Hall of Fame includes this song um, among its 500 tunes that shaped rock and roll. Okay? Let me just listen to the first first segment of it so you can kind of get a feel for it if you don't know the tune. Go ahead and play that, guys. We're going to hear more from it a little bit later. But um, like Tim said last week about the band 21 Pilots, this is music made by Christians. It's not Christian music. It's music made by Christians. And I think that that's a, a great way of understanding it because the, musically, what they're attempting to do is to express something that's in their soul, that's in their heart. It just happens to be filled with with Christian ideas, which I think is a, is a, a, a great perspective to have, a great perspective. Um, point of origin for creativity and so uh, I think that's a a solid way of understanding this and there's this profound spirituality within that song and some of their others that resonate with with people you know even 30 years later my goodness 30 years in in the final section of the of the tune it talks about uh, let's see I, I think I got the lyrics up yeah I believe when the kingdom comes then all the colors will bleed into one Bleed into one, but yes, I'm still running. Isn't that interesting? You broke the bonds, you loosened the chains, you carried the cross of my shame. Of my shame, you know. I believe it. I ain't Christian. I don't know what is. Right? <laughs> That's pretty, pretty obvious. And so, you know, here we are, 30 years later, and we're still talking about that. If you've been to a concert. Um, I've not seen one. <clears throat> I have some friends in the audience right now who actually went a few weeks ago, and yes, I'm jealous, and I'm not talking to them, but that's okay. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Um, if you've been to the concert, one of the things that is a common uh, characterization of those concerts is that worship breaks out. I have a friend of mine uh, up, in, up in Wisconsin, and he went to see um, one of the tours that you 2 did and was in Chicago. And I remember having lunch with him a couple days afterwards, and, and he described when this song was sung. And he said to me, why can't church be like that? You know, on the one hand, I'm like, oh, yeah. And on the other hand, I'm like, oh, why isn't it? You know, I mean, there's just this this sense of, of spirituality to it. I think what happens is is that there's music like this out there that just gives voice to the human search, the human longing for something a little bit deeper. See, one of my fundamental uh, presumptions about art in general is that it's emotional, and it comes from a very emotional place, and it connects to other people emotionally, and so when we give voice to something that's very human, like searching, like longing, I think that's where we find a lot of resonance with each other. And today I want to talk a little bit about searching. Um, uh, There's a series of parables that occur in Luke's biography of Jesus. And um, he picks up this idea of of searching. Jesus does as he's telling these stories. And, And so we're going to read through Luke chapter 15. So if you have your Bible, you might want to turn there. Um, and so we'll read through it, and I want to offer some thoughts as we go along, uh, because there's some, some really interesting things that are happening within this, this segment of Scripture. So I'm going to be in Luke chapter 15, I'm going to start with verse 1, and I'm going to read through this, and we're going to talk about it as we go along. Luke 15, verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear him, meaning Jesus, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Now stop right there, because this is the setup. If this is not the setup of all setups, I don't know what is. This idea of tax collectors and sinners. And normally speaking, when a Jew was talking about tax collectors, it was always in the context of and sinners. And there is some evidence to suggest that sinners in this case means prostitutes. Just FYI. Doesn't necessarily mean that's only what they're talking about, but it probably includes that too. So we're talking about, um, I think the, the passage that um, Dan read in Matthew was, was disreputable. <laughs> disreputable. Tax collectors and sinners. Now, um, <clears throat> You need to understand that these two groups of people, or they're all together, were absolutely despised by the religious elites like the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Why? Because they were disqualified from worship. In Jewish custom, you had clean or unclean. And the reason something was unclean um, made it, whatever the reason was, made it Disqualified from worship means you could not go to the temple. You could not offer sacrifice. And if that were the case, you could not be reconciled to God. See why this is a big deal? So tax collectors and sinners were disqualified from worship. And and the thing that is so odd here is Jesus spent much of his time with this group of people. Andy Stanley makes the observation at one point that people who were not like Jesus liked Jesus. And so they would spend time with him. And I like the way he says that because I think it's absolutely true. And, and we see Jesus spending time with this group of people throughout the Gospels, through all of these biographies. And, and, and the reason for it is they were the ones who recognized that they probably needed some help. They were the most repentant. They were the ones who were willing to change. And on the opposite end, uh, side of the aisle, you have these Pharisees, who were more like the religious police than anything else, shaking their fingers at whoever wasn't, you know, towing the line or living up to the standard or whatever it happened to be, and they were unaware of their own need for the good news. Because we all need good news at some point. Some of us just need it a little bit more than others. (laughs) It's true. In Matthew, Jesus actually chastises the Pharisees that the tax collectors and prostitutes would probably enter God's kingdom before them. (laughs) Yeah. So then he launches into a group of parables. We're going to start with verse three. Here we go. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Does he not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there may be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Now hold up right there because there's a couple things that are happening in this little story. First of all, Jesus says in in that first verse, suppose one of you has a hundred sheep. Now, remember who the audience is here, okay? He's got some tax collectors and sinners, but he also has Pharisees. And he asks them to imagine with him. Imagine, if you will, if you had a hundred sheep. Now, what you need to understand is that in um, some of the early writings of the rabbis, the groups of Pharisees, shepherds were considered un clean. And their testimony was untrustworthy. So Jesus is asking the Pharisees, why don't you pretend like you're one of those guys? (laughs) I just love how Jesus pokes the bear with sticks. I just really like that a lot. I think Jesus pretty much irritated everybody at some point. And, uh, you know, if I'm not I'm not irritating somebody. I'm probably not doing my own job. So, But it's, it's an interesting thing. He says, imagine if you will, you were a shepherd and, and you lost one of your sheep. Would you not go and do this? Well, yeah, because that sheep is an asset. Of course, I'm going to go ahead and do something. Now, we don't have sheep. At least most of us don't have sheep in today's world. But think of it this way. How many of you have lost a pet? And you get in the car and you drive up and down the streets calling it bingo, bingo. And you would come across somebody and you say, hey, have you seen my dog Bingo? This is what Bingo looks like. And you know, you've done this, right? Or you know people have done this. People have done this in your neighborhood. And, and then you see that person a couple of days later because they live in your neighborhood. And, hey, did you ever find Bingo? Yes, we found him. He was over on 137th. And, oh my gosh, I can't believe he survived 137th. And we're all happy that somebody found Bingo. That's what's going on here. Okay. So we have this little parable, imagine if you will. Imagine if you would have lost your dog. Would you not stop what you were doing, jump in the car, and start searching for him, and then get excited about when you find the dog? Yeah? All right, let's keep going. Another parable. Or suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Does she not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. This is an interesting little passage. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? Please understand, there's a couple of things that are happening here. If this was in the middle of the day, the fact that she has to light a lamp means that her home probably doesn't have windows, which means that she probably was impoverished. That's what this implies. And so she lights a lamp in order to find the coin. And we can also make a certain deduction because the silver coin was approximately a day's wage. So if you have 10 silver coins, that's her life savings. She lost one. And she'll do whatever she can to, in order to find it. Now, <clears throat> most of us keep our money in a bank or in some kind of an investment account or something like this. So let's not think of it that way. How many of you have lost your wedding ring? Yeah. And you found it, right? And you found it. It's like, whoo! <laughs> you know, that's really what happens. But that's the same thing that's happening here, is imagine if you had lost your wedding ring. Would you not move heaven and earth to try to find that? Whether or not it's made out of gold or some other precious metal, it may not be your wealth. The sentimental value alone would be, you know, well, you can always get another one. Uh-uh, it's not the same thing, is it? Of course not. Of course not. So that's, that's what's happening in this parable here, is we've got this, this woman who's probably impoverished, and she's, she's searching for this, just like you would your wedding band. All right. And we come to a very famous uh, parable. If you grew up in the church, you have heard this one. I'm sure of it. Let's start reading verse 11. The parable of the lost son. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all that, that he had, set off for a distant land, and he, there squandered his wealth in wild living. Stop right there for a second. Let me see if I can kind of put some texture on this. So you have a man who has, uh, what we find out, two sons. And one of the sons, the younger one, comes to his father and says, divide up your estate. Okay. In uh, ancient Israel, what would happen upon the death of the patriarch, the father, the estate would be divided up not equally among the children, males primarily. Sometimes females, but normally males. And there was a certain protocol on how they did all of that, and and, uh, I won't get into it. But essentially what, what this young man is doing is walking up to his father and saying, I wish you were dead. Give me my inheritance now. This is offensive. (laughs) There's no other way of saying it. It is an offensive thing. And what's so amazing is that the father actually does it. Most of uh, an ancient Israelite's wealth would have been in land. And therefore it would have taken a period of time, but that son took the land, very likely, and sold it. So not only was he offensive by asking for it, he was offensive by what he did with it because he converted it to cash. He liquidated it, went off, and he spent it. So everything that the father had worked for had been divided up. Some of it was taken, liquidated, and squandered. Can you see the offense here? And every Jew who was listening to this at the time would have gone, sucked the air right out of the room. That was a big, big thing. Jesus is poking away right here, okay? So, verse 14. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. If you are a Jew, one of the things that you know in the first five books of the Bible, the books of the law, is that there are certain animals that are clean and certain animals that are unclean. Pigs are unclean. So not only are you not to eat them, you are not to associate with them. So by virtue of his job, he was perpetually unclean. Not only was he offensive, now he was almost untouchable. The condition of this son has just degenerated. In fact, I would be hard-pressed to think of something as low as that. So he is in need. He is a hired hand, probably sold himself into some type of indentured servitude. Most likely, and he's feeding pigs, and he's hungry. Wow. Can you say depressing? Very much so. Let's keep reading. Verse 17. Love this verse. When he came to his senses, <laughs> nothing like a little bit of hunger pains make you come to your senses, right? Yeah. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. And this makes sense. He gets to that point of destitution where he he can't think of what else to do, but then reminded of the way his father treated his hired hands. Well, obviously, I've done this offensive thing. I've become very unclean, so I can't really go back as a son, but maybe I can go back as a hireling. Okay. Verse 20. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. This is the pivot, this is the turning point in the story. Because if you have a wealthy man in a village, it would be undignified for him to go running through the village. And it would have been very undignified and completely shocking that he would embrace an unclean son, unclean in more ways than one, after he had done something so offensive. And yet that's exactly what the father did. And I love what happens in the very next verse. <clears throat> the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And it's like the father cuts him off and says, says something. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Can you imagine that? Have you ever had one of those speeches worked out where you were going to, you just had the right thing to say. Maybe it was, you know, you needed to, to, to confront somebody with something um, or, or you needed to make an apology and they cut you off. You were ready to confront And they said they were sorry. You were ready to make an apology, and they already forgave you. It kind of pulls the rug right out from under your feet. So not only is that happening here, we're going to party too, right? And so this has got to be one of the most. I I get this feeling that the young man here is kind of, you know, slack jawed and kind of eyes bugging out. Like, what is going on? And that's, that's exactly what Jesus is trying to show. He's contrasting these two things. Verse 25, meanwhile, (laughs) the older brother was in the field, because that's where he always was. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in, so his father went out and pleaded with him, but he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, interesting choice of a phrase, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. Verse 31. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. (laughs) It's an amazing story and there's lots of ink spilled on this one. It has multiple uh, levels of meaning. There are lots of things that we can deduce from it. Plenty of implications. And, and you can probably guess that there are different um, members of the audience that are represented there as well. Because remember, he's speaking to tax collectors and sinners on one hand and Pharisees on the other. And of course, his disciples are somewhere in the background and he's telling the story about God. And you can kind of see how uh, different people are playing different roles. But what I really want you to notice is the movement that's happening in these parables. We move from sheep to coins to a son. There's movement here. And I want you to notice something too. There's a little bit of math going on as well. Didn't think you were going to get math in church this morning, right? Very first one, imagine you owned 100 sheep and one was missing. That's 1%. Notice that 10 coins, one went missing, that's 10%. Notice that he had two sons. If this were a MasterCard commercial, it would say priceless, right? But it's 50% that's going on here. And so with each step in these parables, there's a greater sense of urgency in the search. There's a greater sense of necessity for a celebration. Because it's one thing to be happy that you found Bingo the dog. It's something entirely when a lost child comes to their senses and comes home, right? I mean, you can see how that uh, would require a great celebration. And in this last story too, the circumstance escalates. There's the younger son's offensive request and the offense of what he actually did with it And then there's the father's lavish response. First, he gives him what he requests and then welcomes him him home. And then finally, you've got the elder son hidden resentment the entire time. It's about searching, searching for something. Something. It's a repeated theme in the Bible. It's repeated in some fashion in American culture, whether you're watching a movie or TV or listening to music. But the thing of it is, we may not say it out loud that we're searching for something. And I meet people all the time um, that are searching for something. Uh, You know, it could be they're longing for someone to complete them. If you like Jerry Maguire, right? You complete me. They're looking for... um, the right spouse, they're looking for the right career, they're looking for the right house, they're looking for the right school, they're looking for the right car, they're looking for the right pair of shoes. They're all searching for something in some way. And yes, I'm gonna be honest, be completely transparent, I wrestle with it myself. We are all, as Don Miller titled his book, searching for God knows what. And I often find when I'm talking with people that they're not really sure exactly what they're searching for. They just know what it isn't, (laughs) right? Well, I know that that's not it yet. I haven't, yeah. They don't know what it is, but they do know what it isn't. I'll know it when I find it. Okay. There's something I want to point out here. I want to point out something that I think that these parables reveal to us. You may want to write this one down. You're not the only one searching. You're not the only one searching. As much as you are searching for something, God is searching for you. And maybe we could put it this way. If you don't get anything else from this message, this is the one thing I want you to remember. We search for God until he finds us. And I know that sounds cliche, but it's very, very true that there are two sides to this, and it's not just about human beings searching for something divine. It is about the divine, the hound of heaven himself, searching after human beings. And there's something about that that I find very comforting to know, that I'm not the only one that's trying to do this, but there is someone else out there, one who sees all in divine light who is out searching for me. As well. Later on in Luke, I think it's in chapter 19, Jesus says that, I, that he had come to seek and save the lost. We get so wrapped up on this idea of saving the lost, don't we? Oh, yeah, we want to go save the lost, but there's one part of that that we, we can't. It's the seeking part. That Jesus came to seek. Yes, did he come to save? Sure. By his death and resurrection, we are saved if we believe. But he sought us first. And that is a very powerful, powerful feeling. And I think the danger here is, especially if you've grown up in the church, the danger here is to to believe. Now, hold hold on here. I'm going to get in trouble. That's okay. I've been in trouble before. I'll be in trouble again. All right. The danger here is when we believe that Jesus only searches for us once. Because it's like, if I come to faith in Jesus, and I believe he was who he says he was, that he did the things that the Bible talks about, that he lived and he ministered and he died and was resurrected again, and I believe all of those things, that once I've come to that belief, the searching is over. That's not true. It's not true. Because there are parts of our lives that God is still searching for us. See, in our our tradition, we call that, here's the $5 word, sanctification. Some of you grew up in the Church of God and went, I haven't heard that word in a while. (laughs) Sanctification, we call it discipleship, we call it growth, we call it maturity. But can I just be honest, as transparent as I possibly can, there are parts of my life that God has not sanctified yet. And God is still searching for those things inside of me. I'm not talking about you, that's between you and God. I'm just telling you what I believe. But I know I've got some of those things that are deep down that need that discipleship. And what I know is I don't care who you are. I don't care how long you've been in the church. I don't care how old you are. I don't care how holy you think you are. Every person has another step to take with God. Everybody. Everybody. And I think... That whether you're new to life in Jesus, whether you've been around the block a few times, or if you've followed Jesus all your very long life, you have another step. I grew up in the church. I do not have a story where I walked away from the church at one point and came back. I've been in the church all of my life. Very rare that I wasn't in church on Sunday, even when I was in college. And I still have another step to take with Jesus daily, daily. You've heard me say this. When I wake up in the morning, I like me. I don't know if I necessarily want to go ahead and love my wife and kids the way I love me. Some of you know my wife and kids, and you're like, man, they're saints, aren't they? (laughs) Right? Yeah, it's true. It's true. But we all have these steps to take that I have to give myself up to love my neighbor as myself. And sometimes the neighbor is the woman who sleeps next to me or the kids who are down the hall. You, you understand this. And see, I believe God is still calling after us. In the book of Genesis, we read in Genesis chapter 1 that God created the heavens and the earth. And he looked upon it and he said, not that it was just good, that it was very good. And he even gave Adam a job, the first humans a job, to to care for and cultivate that garden. But somewhere along the line, Adam and his wife Eve made a decision to not follow God. And the text records, it's very interesting, that God went to meet with them. Can you imagine meeting with God face to face? Went to meet with them. And Adam and Eve didn't show up. And the question that God asked, where are you? Where are you? As if God didn't know. But the point is, is that God started seeking us in Genesis chapter 3. The beauty of Genesis 1, 2, and 3 is not that it was some story that happened thousands of years ago, but it's a story that each one of us faces in our own lives, sometimes daily. That's the beauty of the story, is I can identify with that because I have a choice to make for or against God. And sometimes I make that choice against God. And yet God still asks, David, where are you? And I'm grateful for that. Because I'm not the only one searching.